You know, religious people are often some of the most exclusive people around. They gravitate toward people who think like they do. They're hesitant to befend, befend people who are different than they are. They have strict lists of do's and don'ts. And they tend toward being judgmental and harsh rather than extending love and demonstrating grace. In last week's sermon, Pastor Jen focused on Jesus' ongoing conflict with the Pharisees, leaders of the Jewish religion. The Bible doesn't present the Pharisees in a positive light. In fact, you could make a case that they're the villains of the New Testament. The scriptures aren't kind to these religious leaders, but the Pharisees weren't bad people. They were respected and influential leaders in the culture of their day. Jesus' problem with them, or more accurately, their problem with Jesus, was that Jesus prioritized loving people over obedience to the law and following all the rules. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were so fixated on trying to please God by seeking holiness for themselves and others and following the letter of the law that they lost sight of God's heart of love for people. For Jesus, obeying the law took a back seat to loving people. Their different priorities meant that conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees was inevitable. Early in the Bible, we see God kind of anticipating this exclusivity that he was afraid or he was convinced his people would embrace. Immediately after calling Abraham to follow him, God spoke these words to the father of the Jews. He said, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And then I have this bolded. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The heart of God from the beginning of the Bible to the end was that his love was available to all people. He set aside the Jews as his people so that they could become a nation that was set apart, holy, focused on him, that would follow his laws and work out his purposes and become his people so that all the nations around them would get a glimpse of God's love and would see who God was. Throughout the Old Testament, God reminded his people time and time again that the blessings he was pouring out of them weren't to be hoarded and kept for themselves. His blessings were always meant to be shared with others. And yet God's people grew increasingly exclusive. By the time Jesus arrived on the scene, the Jewish people were one of the most exclusive communities in the world. It's not surprising then that one of Jesus' main emphases throughout his life and ministry was to demonstrate the inclusivity and far-reaching nature of God's love. And it's also not surprising that he was destined for conflict with the Pharisees and other Jewish religious leaders like the Sadducees and the teachers of the law. We've titled this sermon series, Glimpses of the Kingdom, because as we explore Luke's gospel chapters 2 through 15 over these first six weeks of 2024, we're focusing on how Luke shares accounts from Jesus' life to demonstrate what God's kingdom looks like. As the only New Testament writer who was a non-Jew, Luke was passionate about helping his Jewish and his Gentile readers understand that God's kingdom wasn't limited to Jews. It was for everyone, 
who accepted Jesus as their Messiah and Lord. In chapter 7 of Luke, we see three accounts of Jesus' interaction with people that good Jews wouldn't normally have interacted with. And yet in each case, Jesus extended love and grace to these people. Before we look at Jesus' interaction with a Roman centurion, the dead son of a widow, and a person that Luke refers to as a sinful woman, I want us to to view an exchange that's recorded in the middle of chapter 7 between Jesus and John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples. John had been imprisoned by King Herod because he insisted on denouncing Herod's marriage to Herodias, the divorced wife of his half-brother Philip. In prison, John experienced doubts about Jesus, and he sent his disciples to ask Jesus whether or not he was truly the Messiah. And I want to read from verse 18 of Luke chapter 7. Now remember as I read this, this is John the Baptist who came and foretold the coming of Jesus, who told his disciples, that's the Son of God, follow him. And yet in prison, he was overcome by doubts and he sent his disciples to Jesus. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, John sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sickness, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have heard and seen. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the dead hear, the dead are raised, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. John the Baptist, who boldly foretold Jesus' coming, was in prison. He was tired, hungry, and alone. He'd been imprisoned by King Herod and was no doubt wondering if he was going to be executed, which eventually he was. As he languished in prison with too much time on his hands, he was troubled by doubts, and he began to question whether Jesus was truly the Messiah. And so he sent his disciples to Jesus to try to assuage his doubts. And Jesus' answer was direct and concise. The blind see, the lame walk, Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus pointed to all that he was doing as evidence that he was the Messiah and that God's kingdom had arrived. And his summary of his activity, you might notice, is very similar to words that that Jesus spoke in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I particularly love that statement, the year of the Lord's favor. Because you've encountered this, and some of us struggle with this ourselves. People who don't follow God, their view of God is often of a God who's out to get them who's ready to crack them into line, to judge them. And yet Jesus said he had come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God loves you. He cares about you. He wants what's best for your life. That's the message 
that Jesus came to proclaim. I wanted us to focus on Jesus' interaction with John's disciples before we look at these three encounters because it serves as a reminder of why Jesus came to earth. When asked, are you, was the, one, are you the one who was to come, or should we look for someone else? Jesus said, take note of how I'm demonstrating God's love by ministering to people and proclaiming God's good news. Jesus' mission was to point people to God's love by loving them, caring for them, and healing them. And now I want us to look at these three encounters with people that emphasize the message that the good news of the kingdom was for everyone. The first of these is found in Luke chapter 10, or sorry, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. I just want to pause there. He sent elders of the Jews because as a Roman centurion, he didn't think he could get an audience with Jesus. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he's even built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house of the centurion. When the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Every devout Jew despised the Romans, especially Roman soldiers like the centurion. The Romans had occupied Jerusalem and the surrounding area for nearly a century. Living under foreign rule is painful for anyone, but especially for God's people who cherish their freedom after spending a large portion of their history under captivity. The Roman Empire spanned much of the known world at that time, but the empire's grip was particularly strong on Judea because of the constant threat of coup attempts. Would-be messiahs with their ragged bands of followers who believed they were God's promised messiah who would lead Israel to freedom. Roman military presence in and around Jerusalem was particularly strong so that these frequent uprisings could be squashed. So it was bad enough that Jesus would respond to the centurion's request to heal his servant. But Jesus didn't stop there. He had the gall to lift up the centurion as a model of faith. When he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. Highlighting the faith of a Gentile and a Roman military leader at that was completely unacceptable. Let's look now at Jesus' second encounter. I'll pick up reading at verse 11 of Luke chapter 7. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain 
and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. Jewish law strictly forbade religious leaders having physical contact with a dead body. Being holy, one set apart for God, meant separation from human blood and death. But that didn't stop Jesus from touching the funeral bier, the frame or the stretcher that carried the coffin in which the dead man was being transported to his burial. We're told that this man was the only son of a widow. In other words, he was her only means of support. And so a widow in that culture without any kind of family support was in a very vulnerable spot. When Jesus saw the widow who was weeping, we're told his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Jesus was moved with compassion for her and for her plight. And so he touched the funeral bier and raised a man to life. For Jesus, loving and caring for people, took priority over following rules and religious practices. The last encounter in Luke chapter 7 is found in verses 36 to 50. This is probably the most controversial of the three. Once again involving Jesus' nemesis, the Pharisees. I'll read the account of the encounter and then come back and look at Jesus' response to the Pharisee. I'll begin reading at verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town, who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. The social and religious faux pas here are many. First of all, the woman who approached Jesus had lived a sinful life. Sinful life. She was likely a prostitute or at least known to be a promiscuous woman. Secondly, as a woman and a sinful woman at that, she had no business entering a Pharisee's house uninvited. Third, it was completely inappropriate for her to touch a man that wasn't her husband in public, especially in such an intimate way. Fourth, the cost of an alabaster jar of perfume was exorbitant. Another gospel account says it was probably equal to a year's wages. This display of love and adoration was highly wasteful. In that other gospel account I referred to, Jesus' disciples objected. One of them said, this money could have been shared with the poor, not wasted like this. And five, to top it all off, Jesus, a known religious leader, a rabbi, allowed and encouraged this woman's public display of affection. Jesus' response 
to the woman clearly demonstrated his approval of her actions, but his explanation to Simon, the Pharisee host, was even more pointed. In verse 40, we read these words. Jesus answered him, and, and this, I, I point this out to you often, but I love this. This happens throughout the New Testament. It says, the Pharisee who invited Jesus said to himself, i.e., he thought. Jesus answered him. <laughs> Is there anything more disarming than that? You're having a thought and somebody answers you? So, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. And I can picture this. Pharisee being very smug, tell me, teacher, he said. Jesus said, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If you're keeping score after Jen's message last week, that's Jesus five and Pharisees nothing. Since we're in football season, we could translate that and say, Jesus 35, Pharisees nothing. Once again, Jesus openly confronted the Pharisees' preoccupation with religious protocol, which kept them from caring and loving people, and he didn't stop there. He went on to tell the sinful woman that her sins were forgiven and that she could go in peace because her faith had saved her. I like the distinction that Pastor Jen made last week based on Dallas Willard's quote that the question we should be asking as followers of Jesus isn't WWJD, what would Jesus do, but how did Jesus do it? Behind the question, how did Jesus do what he did, lies the question, what was Jesus' motivation? What was it that propelled Jesus to do what he did? I could give a long list of explanations and kind of lay out a whole theology for you on that, but that would take some time. But the Gospel writer John sums it up so well in verses that many of us know, John 3, 16 and 17. These words are going to be on the screen, and I'd like you to read these aloud with me. Are you ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That verse highlights Jesus' motivation. He came to share God's love. He came to save the world. And that's where the distinction, the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, that's really the crux of it. 
Because seemingly the religious leaders came to condemn and judge and tell people how they were missing the mark. Jesus had said, did not come to condemn the world, that's easy to do, but he came to save the world through him. And that, I would submit to you, is the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. They were focused on judging, condemning, showing people where they had fallen short, holding themselves up as paragons of holiness. Jesus came not to condemn, but to love and ultimately to save. It was the love of God that compelled Jesus to say and do all that he did during his time on earth. And it's love for God that Jesus wants to be the driving motivation for each of us who call ourselves his disciples. Now, I hope when I started the beginning to talk about religious people, maybe initially some of you kind of stepped back a bit, but I like to make the distinction for people that Christianity and following Jesus isn't a religion, it's a relationship. So hopefully when I talk about religious people, I'm not talking about you all. I'm talking about people who are so focused on following the letter of the law that they lose sight of the priority of relationship with Jesus. At McBick, we talk regularly about the importance of loving people in such a way that they're attracted to Jesus' love through us. We regularly encourage loving others with Jesus' love through our sermons. In our children and youth ministries, which I think do a great job of highlighting Jesus' love. We highlight missional communities in our community that are doing a fantastic job caring for people with Jesus' love and encourage many of you to be involved in serving in those ministries. Our mission statement seeks to capture this priority with these simple words, experiencing Jesus and sharing his love. Experiencing Jesus and sharing his love. Our goal for every worship service we have for our kids' ministries on Sundays, for our teen ministries on Sunday morning and Wednesday night with middle schoolers and Sunday night with high schoolers, is that people would experience Jesus. And as we experience him, that we would be prepared to share that love for others. Now, it's easy for us to focus on sharing Jesus' love as the main objective of that statement, while glossing over experiencing Jesus. But the reality is this. If we're not experiencing Jesus' love, we're not going to be sharing his love with others. This, I believe, among other things, was the Pharisees' problem. They spent so much of their energy focused on the law, on making sure they were holy and that others were holy, that they failed to experience God's love for themselves. In fact, it appears that their preoccupation with the law and holiness actually insulated them from personally experiencing God's love. As a result, rather than sharing God's love with others, all they had to share with others was laws, rules, judgment, and condemnation. That last statement I made is so important. If we're not personally experiencing Jesus' love, instead of sharing his love with others, all that we'll have to share is rules and judgment and condemnation. And people will experience us like they did the Pharisees instead of how people experience Jesus. And I can describe what that looked like very quickly. The Pharisees, people kept their distance. 
You didn't go near a Pharisee because you were going to be criticized. You were going to be condemned. Some flaw was going to be pointed out. Jesus, on the other hand, and this boggles my mind, whatever we read in the New Testament, wherever we read Jesus and sinners, sinners were drawn to Jesus like a magnet. That's such a an amazing concept to me because our tendency is when we're around somebody who's holier than we are or who we perceive to have their stuff together, we tend to back up and keep our distance. But sinful people like this woman flock to Jesus because they sensed his heart of love. They felt God's love for them through him. We're near the end of January now, so perhaps you've moved past the time of making New Year's resolutions. But if you're open to it, because you've probably broken them already, so it's time to reset anyway, right? Um, If you're open to it, I'd like to propose a resolution for each of us, individually and as a church family. Let's make 2024 a year in which we deeply and routinely experience Jesus' love. Pretty simple, right? But I believe that's the heart of what we're here for and what we're about as followers of Jesus. That we would be people who are experiencing Jesus' love and then naturally sharing out of the overflow of that love with others. As we genuinely experience Jesus, sharing his love with others will be a natural outgrowth and our lives will more closely resemble Jesus' life than the lives of the Pharisees. In other words, when people who are far from God interact with us, what they'll sense is love, compassion, care that draws them to us rather than judgment, condemnation that pushes them away. I want to invite the worship team to come up. And as I was thinking about the message and going over it this morning, I just, I I was kind of fixated on that question that I asked you as we began, how do I need to experience Jesus' love today? And so I want to encourage you, as I pray in a moment, and as we sing this last song, I want to encourage you to really hone in on that question. How do I need to experience Jesus? What do I need from Jesus today? Now you can receive that for yourself as you sit at your seat. But there are prayer partners along the side who would love to pray with you. Maybe you want to come up to one of the prayer benches here at the front and just kind of pray by yourself. Maybe you want to turn to somebody near you and ask them to pray with you and share what's on your heart. But I encourage you to respond to that question. How do I need to experience Jesus today? Lord, I thank you that you came bringing love and pointing us to your heavenly Father's heart of love, rather than just bringing a set of rules and bringing condemnation and judgment. I thank you that in the the words of John 3, 16 and 17, that you came to save us and to love us, not to condemn us. God, I believe that each of us need to experience you in a fresh way today. And I pray that as I pray here and as we sing together, God, that you would speak to our hearts, communicate by your Holy Spirit clearly how each of us need to experience you today with the confidence that as we ask, seek, and knock, that you'll hear and answer our prayers. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the privilege that you give each of us of partnering with you 
in sharing that love with others. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.